Okay, we'll get started. Thank you everyone for coming to the library. Um, I'm excited about this event. Out of uh, our schedule of events this year, it's gonna be interesting. We're gonna kind of geek out on zombies a little bit, I hope. Um, this year's theme for our one book, one college program is World War Z by Max Brooks. So we're living our own zombie apocalypse. And speaking of which, in October, we're going to be doing a game that models a pandemic across campus. It's free to play. It's our own zombie game, so I hope you will all play. Look on our website. Many classes are using it. Uh, you can take advantage of that. It should be unique. Um, with that, let me do some intros of our panel members, and then I'll turn it over to our moderator. Start at the end. Nick Hackett is faculty member in uh, biology, anatomy, physiology, fun stuff. Yes, hello. <laughs> To his left is Michelle Furlow, who is in criminal justice and is one of our resident experts on um, emergency preparedness. To oh, thank you, students. thank you. To her left is Krista Applequist, who is from speech. She'll be our moderator today, trying to keep order for our discussion. To her left is Krista Surup from uh, earth science, environmental science, uh, horror expert. We'll see. And then to her left, is Jason King, who's our resident zombie expert. And I have his <laughs> microphone, so. All right, thank you everyone for coming. I'll turn it over to Krista. Thank you, round of applause. Okay, so am I picking up? Can you hear me? A Couple of nights ago, I had my work calendar open on my computer, and my husband walks by and he sees it, and he glances, he says, 12.30 Tuesday, meeting surviving the zombie apocalypse. Everything going okay on campus? And, and I said, oh no, yeah, it's fine. It's just an in-depth panel discussion on what would really happen if there really was a zombie apocalypse in the world. And he just blinked at me and said, I want your job. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't blame him. So I just wanna thank Troy Swanson, the chair of our library, and all our panelists, and all of you for coming to this event, because how often do you get to stop what you're doing in your day to discuss a zombie apocalypse? So um, with that, let me give this panel a little context. I know not everyone in here has read the book. Uh, okay, so in World War Z by Max Brooks, we've got this worldwide international zombie apocalypse. The book is, takes the form of an oral history. It's actually a collection of fictional interviews um, about this zombie apocalypse, and the interviews are with these fictional characters that might be military, civilian, or government. I read some interviews that were published in the Washington Post and Time Magazine and um, with Max Brooks online last night, and he said in one of the interviews, for every fake interview I did, I did one with a real expert. What happens in a zombie plague is pretty much what happens in any real disaster pandemics, hurricanes, conventional wars, you name it, the human reaction is the same. For me, the zombies are just a catalyst of looking at how humanity deals with calamity. And I think that's the reason why we picked this book as our one book, one college event, not just because it's fun to talk about zombies, uh, but because of the real world implications um, zombies have for us. So, to get this panel started, I will open up some questions and I will direct them at particular panel members, but I want to encourage the panelists to please jump in, interject. If you get out of hand, I will you know, take care of that. Um, but feel free to let the discussion go in whatever direction it, it wants. And then we're going to end about 30 minutes you know, before we have to, to let you in the audience contribute. Okay, so be thinking of questions or disagreements or you know, any, any kinds of comments you'd like to say for the end. 
All right, so to begin, I'm going to direct my first question to Jason King, our certified zombie nerd. <laughs> Jason, we have a very different kind of zombie story here in World War Z. What is the difference, or what are some key differences between World War Z and your typical zombie story? Hello, everybody. Um, World War Z, in a lot of ways, is very different from a traditional zombie film, first off, because it's not a film. The primary medium of, it became a film, obviously, but the primary medium of zombie media has always been the screen, whether it be a show like Walking Dead or a movie like Night of the Living Dead or Evil Dead or Dawn of the Dead or Dead Alive or <laughs> um, Return. You get the point. It's probably got Living Dead in it somewhere. So that's, I think, one of the large differences. The other one is that it's internationalist in scope. When you watch Night of the Living Dead, it's about a farmhouse in Pennsylvania. When you watch The Walking Dead, they do some migrating around, but they don't go to, say, Ghana or um, Peru or anything like that. They're pretty much in the same sort of spot. There's no real everyman in um, World War Z either. In a lot of Night of the Living Dead, the protagonist, the hero, ends up being just somebody, just some guy or some girl that just wanders into a place and saves the day, or sometimes doesn't save the day, succumbs to the fact that this is, after all, an apocalypse. In the book, it takes the place of a couple of different people. In the film, everybody's seen the film, or is it okay if I spoil it or anything? <laughs> There's the main character, the protagonist, is not an everyman. He begins as a hero, and he ends as a hero. So he doesn't have that sort of build up to become something that he wasn't before. Also, I think one of the big differences is that World War Z is not an individualist sort of an ideal. In most of the books, well, in World War Z, the main idea is that the government is there to help you, the government is going to provide for you, and the government typically by following them is going to be the way out of it. That's very uncommon for most pieces of zombie literature or film where most of the time if the government is around, Think of, say, 28 Days Later, where the sort of paramilitary government ends up being the thing that people are really afraid of, and the zombies are just kind of there. There's also kind of a lack of empathy with some of the zombies. In most pieces of zombie film, there's at least a couple of seconds where you take a look and you're like, oh, that zombie is just kind of like us, like you or me. Think about Michonne and the two zombies she keeps around. Or even in the Night of the Living Dead remake, where Barbara says, they're them and we're us but there's really not that sense in World War Z, the book of that. So yeah, that's, that's All right, what thank I got. you, Jason. Panelists, you want to comment on that? Did he miss anything? He was great. <laughs> okay. All right, then I'm going to direct our next question to Michelle, who comes to us from Criminal Justice. If there were to be an actual collapse of a developed society, what would the phases include? What would people do to survive? Well, what I really liked about this book was the parallels that we could see even in our own community to the type of disasters that we could genuinely think about. The likelihood of zombies, as much as I want to be the hero of my own story and save the day, it's probably not going to be likely other than the end of October. But what we, we, the lessons that we've learned from some of the catastrophes that we have seen, whether it be 9-11 or Katrina, there was, the government has instituted a uniform system so that any municipality, any government, anywhere can respond in a similar way. 
the incident command system. So what they'd want us to do is start, for, as far as the government is concerned, at the local level, and then when those resources are overwhelmed, we would move up to the county level, then to the state, and then ask for federal resources. So relying on our local government is really the place that we'd start. Now what I think is so interesting about a zombie apocalypse is the fact of that could be happening everywhere. So we think of the element of, well, we could evacuate, we could go somewhere else. Uh, I don't know where you go to avoid zombies or something like an influenza pandemic where people could be affected at different rates throughout the country or through our local area. So what really is interesting about this is what do you have at home right now to keep you prepared? You may have been stockpiling resources so you can play endless hours of Grand Theft Auto V, but at least then you can take a break, right? What, how could you survive in your house? The government would ask that you be ready for at least three to five days. Now, the library's been releasing tips. You may recognize the informative voice who has been giving you those preparedness tips. But very simple things, how much water should you have in your house? Do you know what medications you may need? What food do you have in your house that you haven't already ransacked because you got hungry in the middle of the night that you have that if you couldn't get out of your house, for fear of zombie biting you while you're perusing the grocery store or simply that you don't have access to get out of your house. So I think it's interesting that really on two different levels, what's the government doing for us? Ideally, they want us to be able to survive on our own and that's where this September being preparedness month, some of these ideas come from. And then what are we doing on the individual level? Like I said, many of us have a stockpile of batteries but then we hit it as soon as that remote goes out and then when we really need it, it's where are those batteries at? Oh, well, I think they're in the DVD remote that just burned out yesterday. So in that aspect, kind of two different levels of preparedness of what we could expect in those initial phases. Michelle, it looked like I was taking notes on what you were saying, but I was actually making a list. I'm like, stock up on water, <laughs> batteries. Water, what batteries, What would I food. need? You know, we just, um, obviously not for zombies, I'm not actually worried about that um, in real life, but just if things were to shut down. You know, well, I don't absolutely. think, I think I just take for granted that the water is going to run out of the faucet. That's going to happen. You I know? think it's a real common, how many of you actually know the phone numbers in your cell phone? That if you needed to call someone, okay, well good, because you're one ahead of me. I kind of maybe know one or two people I could call, but if that battery died and then I didn't have a way to charge it, well, I could call my mom and I really don't know how she's going to help me other than tell me it'll be okay. So it's simple things that we can take of our everyday life, just simply taking an assessment on, uh, as we said, water, food, how are you going to be able to, are you gonna be able to stay warm if there's no electricity? Do you have backup electricity? And the really great thing is that you don't have to run out today and do this all at once. So we're not necessarily encouraging you to become a doomsday prepper where now suddenly you're stockpiling canned goods and you're making salsa in your basement um, <laughs> just in case. You know, well, let's keep the zombie apocalypse festive, right? <laughs> but the, the concept is that you can do this slowly over time if you're thoughtful of it because every season there is a concern, weather related. How many of you remember a couple of months ago or last February I think it was when some of us were here at school longer because the snow got worse and some of us didn't come to school at all and there were lots of roads that if you were stuck in your vehicle could you sit there for a couple of hours? Do you have something to keep warm or do you simply have your shoes that you've got on? Are you going to dig yourself out? So very small tasks that I think this book really reminds us that there are ways that we're vulnerable every day, but that we can take precautions to prevent 
whether it be illness from a flu breaking out and spreading, tornado, other weather conditions that we're vulnerable to here, to some of the more dramatic, I don't want to say exciting, but dramatic, thinking of what would we do on campus if there were an active shooter, um, or what would we do, you know, in a mall or that we're seeing, you know, currently going playing out internationally. So th this, this book does make a lot of really amazing parallels to things that are much closer to us than we may think of as zombies. Yeah, I noticed that is a, a strong theme in the book. The prepared people survive. All right. Well, and how yeah. do you prepare? Do you run <laughs> or do you stay? That's in horror movies, what are you supposed to do, Jason? The one thing that I would probably say is that <coughs> thinking about Dawn of the Dead, the original, you've all seen it, right? Because it's good. <laughs> yeah. The big thing about Dawn of the Dead is they go to a mall and then over time the mall makes them consumers is they stop being nomadic kind of people that are on the run trying to make sure they survive and they just become consumers so that's kind of a theme with Romero is that kind of a consumerist thing I think it's important to not let your stuff be what kind of governs what you do and there's all kinds of lists of things that you could buy I think um, one thing that I think probably every house should have is something called an aquapod an aquapod is you can go on the internet and take a look at it it's a gigantic plastic thing you can put in your bathtub fill it up and even if you don't have say 50 gallons of fresh water your bathtub becomes that and you can use that take it out then use the bathtub again you know for any kind of a survival thing a survival radio is probably good something that's hand crank they even make ones that have a USB port so you can plug your phone in you can crank up so you can use your your iPhone because those are going to be really useful in the apocalypse, after all. You know, Jason, you bring up an interesting point. I think the idea of s our stuff, when you think about it, I, I mentioned the idea, could you stay in your home for three days? Would you shelter in place? But if we had to evacuate, if for some reason zombies don't like windmills and we're all supposed to head west, what would you take <laughs> with you? Like, yeah. What could you carry? You know, really a to-go bag of something. Do you have something durable? In my house, it might be a Care Bear backpack because we have small children. That's probably not going to get me very far. Do I have something durable that I can carry the things that I need in it? You know, I think one of also the misnomers of a lot of this preparedness, and I, I get it, it's exciting, is what weapons am I going to stockpile? You know, that I'm going to have a cache of weapons and Believe me, as former law enforcement, I find weaponry exciting as much as the next person. However, you know, that kind of brings up the question, do we run or do we hide? I don't know if you want to necessarily rely on our own ability to fight as much as I want to think of myself as the hero of my own family and I'd be knocking down doors and I'd be double tapping those zombies in the head. Fairly unlikely. You know, so mm -hmm. that really focusing more on being the hero in the sense of that I've thought of through some of these things ahead of time to be prepared and avoid actually interaction because I think that's probably what most of us want to avoid any instance where I could possibly get hurt at any time no thank you I'll I'll I'll, I'll stay away from that and uh, correct me if I'm wrong but it seems to be a theme in World War Z that the runners survive that the people who barricade themselves in their homes or apartments are just basically sitting like bait is that is that true yeah, from the book. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to pose that to the audience, a question um, at the end of our discussion. What would you bring if you had to flee, and, and what, what do you think is the most important thing to have on you to survive? Okay, Nick. Yeah, I just wanted to say that about a year or so ago, the Center for Disease Control, the actual government agency that would monitor this kind of thing, put out a zombie preparedness like poster or like a presentation, 
and it was exactly the same thing that you would need to survive a zombie apocalypse that you would need in any apocalypse. So it was a joke. Like, they had to say, like, look, zombies aren't real, but you need a first aid kit, you need water, all these things that we've been talking about. And so by going onto their website, I mean, it's cdc.gov, you could find this. And it's not strange things. I mean, it's like what everybody has been saying. What would you use to survive over a few days? Do you have basic medicine, basic food, basic, you know, clothing, shelter, anything like that? Yeah, I just want to add that what, what I'm thinking of right now is I would want a plan for all my loved ones. Like if something happens, something catastrophic, where are you going to be? Don't come to my house or where am I going to be or you know, who's in charge of getting my kid and running and just kind of a where are you going to be so people aren't just looking for each other. You know, Krista, just to add on that real quick, I think another important element of this, and we see it throughout the, the text, is the idea of that when the government issues warnings, whether your belief system is that you believe them or you don't. If the government tells you to evacuate, do you? Do you follow their suggestion? Or, no, I'm, I'm going to be fine here. And we saw with Katrina, a lot of people were told to evacuate, and many thought they could weather the storm. Some did successfully, and as we know from history, quite a few did not. And I think that's an important element that the text brings, but it's also an issue of preparedness. Where are you going for your sources? And do you believe the information that's give, being given to you? You know, going to the CDC, it's an excellent resource. So then why aren't most of us doing it is probably an, another interesting element of this discussion. Yeah, go, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, when there's zombies, it's different from Katrina because you're going to higher ground if there's a flood. But where do you go when there's zombies? The z government doesn't have a place that's free from zombie attack, do they? Also, with zombies, you never know exactly what they can do. If they are truly rising from the grave, we're talking about people that are probably breaking out of uh, concrete areas six feet ground so they're probably pretty strong and return the living dead they can talk they can think they're capable of complex actions so if you hear this is the president come <laughs> here bring your brains then i'm just saying you might want to think about that because that's kind of how they trick them in return of the living dead <laughs> now you know <laughs> okay well, it looks like we're at a good spot to move on to our next question. Another theme in World War Z is that of a pandemic, a, 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 a virus that spreads rapidly, affecting a lot of people. And I know not every zombie movie or zombie um, literature has that particular element. Um, so I'm going to turn this question to Nick, our biology person. In, in the book, the government uh, deployed various methods for preventing the spread of the zombie virus, suicide being one. Okay, we see that if people are bitten, they just want to kill themselves. Um, what do you think is the best route to an organized, top-down method of containment for a highly contagious disease or plague? The government has quarantine zones. We, we want to block things that come into the country, like literal realistic things. We don't want animals from other countries that will ruin our ecosystems. We don't want plants. We don't want mold spores. And so the same kind of logic would apply to zombies. If we could identify the people that are infected, we could put them in a quarantine to kind of study them and isolate them from everyone else. The real challenge with any of these books, of course, is that all of this happens so fast that you don't have the ability to do that. The government is essentially set up to contain this on a small level. 
Every year, there's this huge worry about the flu. You'll probably start hearing about it in the newspaper. This is going to be the worst year ever for the flu. <laughs> they said it last year. They're probably going to say next year. Every year is the worst year ever. But it's the same kind of fear that if there's something out there that spreads and people don't really know that they're carrying it, it could spread through the population faster than the government can catch up to it. And the government's just people. I mean, those are just things that people have set up in place to control these kinds of situations. Um, so I think the best route is probably quarantine so that you can study these things, but we haven't ever had a situation like this. You know, quarantine's been around since the Black Plague, but microbiology has been around since the 1860s. And so our country is older than the understanding of microbes and viruses and anything like that. And so we're still tied to these older systems and they work pretty well for what we do. A couple people get a flu or somebody comes with tuberculosis from overseas, we can quarantine them. What we would do in the case of something that spread rapidly among all kinds of people that we couldn't really detect and would have all of these wide-ranging effects, I think this is part of the reason that the zombie idea is so captivating is that it does expose these gigantic holes that we have in our government or in our protection system that we never think about because they never come up. Usually the system works really well. I'd like to jump in, Nick, if you don't mind, in the fact that with the essence of a quarantine, how many different agencies that we would actually need to utilize? I mean, think to a certain extent, let's even use the flu example. If a third of this room suddenly was becoming ill and we went to seek medical attention and that was then exponentially growing in terms of those that you had contact with, the hospitals would be overwhelmed very quickly. And then you're being told, well, you have to wait in line. Or that not only that, you can't leave and go home, that you have to stay in this quarantine. Well, we would require Department of Transportation to help people get there in terms of public works, of how would we actually um, facilitate these environments, law enforcement for those people who I don't want to stay or I want to get in to where the quarantine is at. Uh, working with public health, uh, are they doing anything preventative? How are we working on the spread? And that's one element that I think is so fascinating about emergency preparedness. It really doesn't matter what area of even here in academics you're studying, it plays an important role. What, what business are you at? Do they have a plan of action that should half their staff not be able to come in? How would they continue to function? Um, and elements of, of that. So I think that this one really exciting element of this book is that whatever it is that our students are studying or your interest is, it really comes into play in your role of expertise should a disaster or an emergency actually happen. Do you have a plan? And that's what the CDC even stressed. That's what people have been saying again and again and again, the plan. Yeah, you can have the physical things. Yeah, I can have a jug of water, but what's the plan? What am I gonna do in an hour or in a day or in a week? And to that same point, like, does the government have a plan for this? Do they have backups to organize a giant effort like this? Or would it all just fall apart because people do their own thing and they don't always want to listen? And I just want to point out, um, in the movie, it ends with him running to the World Health Organization. They had this big facility there, but there was just a handful of scientists left and they're just shrugging their shoulders like, we don't know how to stop it. It's a virus. You can't. You can't vaccinate against it, you, you can't cure it, you can't, you can't do anything. And of course they had one zombie, one of their own scientists, trapped in, they were just sort of watching her be a zombie, and they, they were sort of clueless, but the answer was found there um, at the end of the movie. There's a similar scene in The Walking Dead. I don't want to ruin that for anybody, because if you haven't seen the first season, it would ruin it. But it, it, it plays out in a very different way, and it's really interesting 
what happens when they get to that government organization. Yeah, so if you've seen the first that. season, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. If I think not, we'll have a volatile audience yes. should all of a sudden. Yeah, and by not, the way. No spoilers. <laughs> the idea that you can stop an apocalypse or turn it around is kind of anti-apocalyptic, I guess. So most, most pieces of literature, most films, they do not end with, oh, and the zombies are all gone and everything is better. Even the original one, the zombies were all gone, but it ended up costing the remaining humans kind of their humanity. So, Well, and that was kind of an interesting thought that I thought was interesting coming into this. I have to be totally honest with the audience. I did not know a lot about zombies. I didn't know there were fast zombies. I didn't know there were <laughs> slow zombies. Uh, and I wasn't familiar, I'm sorry, Jason, with any of the movies that he had That's mentioned cool. previously. I stay in my little law enforcement world. But that's what I thought was one of the interesting concepts coming out of this book was what makes someone a zombie and how do we tell the difference? And as you said, that to a certain extent, we get to the point where if there's nothing that can be done, how are you going to cope? And then that got back into my realm of, okay, dealing with stressful situations and whatnot. But I thought that was a really intriguing aspect of the variation between humanity and the, the blurred lines of the zombie being them and then the rest of us just trying to fight the good fight. In some ways, I think zombies are very different and very alien from humans, but in other ways, they're kind of ideal humans. They don't bicker with each other. They don't fight each other. They focus on what they need. They're not interested in fashion. They, <laughs> they eat. They do what they have to do to survive. You know, that's... and. Whenever dealing with slow zombies, almost always a movie with slow zombies, what happens is it's not that the zombies end up overrunning the humans, it's that the humans end up destroying themselves. Is that zombies are just kind of an instrument of, of humanity's destruction. Mostly because they work together, they're not interested in petty politics, stuff like that. Fast zombies, totally different story. So, fast zombies, normally it is the zombies and they're trying to eat us. And that's what does humanity in. I think it's an interesting point because if you think about it, you know, not concerned with fashion, only interested in like basic needs, cooperative generally. I mean, these are the, the descriptions of animals. And so in a way, like the zombie is scary because it, it puts our humanity in our face. It shows us like what we are as animals. And then we have to come to terms with what makes us different from these things. Um, so I think idealized humans is a really interesting way to think about it. It's almost, in my mind, it's, it's almost like a return to what we evolved from, kind of like mindless, I don't know, animals, I guess you could say. Well, that was one of the themes. In doing some of my research, I went to a premier source. I watched Shaun of the Dead. And what I thought was so relevant about that was the fact of that played on the fact that we ourselves are zombies in our everyday life and that we just fall into our routines mm -hmm. and we go to whatever obligation we need to be. And then we drive home and, oh, good, I'm here. And I'm going to do the same thing again the next day, which I thought was very relevant to why many of us don't prepare or don't develop our plan. We just get caught up in our everyday life, and doing these extra tasks seem too taxing in amongst themselves. But also in the fact of, as you said, the element then of humanity kind of being in our face and how are we different from of these groups, the mindless, or that they're only focused on one thing. And that's actually why, kind of coming back to Jason's point, or maybe Krista, maybe you'd said this, that the element that it ends up being in the long run that we're almost against ourselves. 
So one element that our humanity of this cooperation, that we can come together, that we can plan, that our government will develop a plan, that we can have an idea of what would happen in a disaster, but yet in the long run, as typically what we see is then that's when the lawlessness is ensues, when the tax on those resources, when there isn't clean water, when we've been in that quarantine for months on end, in some of the fictionalized accounts, that's when we see the competition set in and the, the lawlessness and you know, kind of the theme of a show like Walking Dead. So really kind of the juxtaposition of the cooperation, but yet the separation. Yeah, so going back to what Jason said and what you just touched on, um, the theme about humans being the biggest enemy in, in a zombie apocalypse. Um, do you feel that that's an accurate portrayal? And I'm just putting this to any of you. Um, in an emergency, do we divide against each other typically? Or is it more likely that we bond together and help our fellow humans? Well, the library actually has a really great book. I highly recommend if this is a subject matter interest to you. It, the title of the book is Unthinkable, and the author, her name is escaping me right now. But it takes a look at when disaster strikes, who survives. And her research really seems to show that in the face of a disaster, that people come together. We risk injury to ourselves to help others in need. Um, in my uh, criminology class, we just took a look at the case of the University of Texas shooter and how many people threw themselves out onto the quad risking being shot to save someone else. And we do see that in the face of danger, that people have a sense of humanity. They have, that's what makes us different um, as our species, that we have this, that's our safety net. We, we don't have a, we don't have claws. We, we don't have armor as part of our bone structure. So the fact that we can work together, but I think, and then what we do see, unfortunately, take a look at all the scams that have come across whenever there's a disaster. You get the email, don't click directly on this. You don't know if your money's going to the agency you want. Someone's going to take advantage of that cooperation. So, I, I mean, I think it's nowhere near as simple as saying that, yes, we all work together because then when the, the event becomes very long-term, that's then we start to see that cooperation break apart. Well, and that was in the book, too. I think initially people were helping each other out, and then as the food source ran out, clean water, things like that, it's kind of every man or woman for themselves. So that's what I would see happening. I think that to some extent it might be a false dichotomy, is that in some ways humans cooperate to compete. I can't think of a single culture that's ever existed anywhere throughout time and space that hasn't had an outgroup, a group that's persecuted. I think that human beings have tried to overcome that sense of tribalism, but it always just seems to not work as well as we'd like to to overcome it. We've been, what, civilized for 6,000, 7,000 years, still fighting wars. Seems like that's something we should have been able to figure out by now. We haven't. I don't know. Sorry to be a downer. <laughs> well, even on the smaller level, though, Jason, I think that's very accurate. You, you bring up whether how many of us really wanted to see Big Ben get put in the dirt on Sunday night. We wanted to see the Bears just, oh, we didn't want to just win. We wanted to dominate. Nothing against Pittsburgh, of course, personally. I'm sure it's a very lovely city. But Sunday night, we wanted to see that division. Mm, <laughs> yeah. But, and that's where it's so even on sort of an entertainment level, our lives have nothing at stake, ideally, that it, whether the Bears were to win or not, um, and they did, of course, so we all had a good Monday. But 
the, the point is, even on these arbitrary lines, we, we divide ourselves on things that don't necessarily have a stake to our survival and how quickly that can amplify what it is that we're looking out for our own. And I think a little bit of that hero worship, that we like that concept of the, all, most of our stories tell that of the individual who was able to rise above. And I think all of us, there's a little part of our inner soul that I want to be that per I don't want to be the, the, the str first character to have been the dust in the story, and that's my legacy. No, I want to make it to the end. I want to be the one that the, the crowd's raising on their shoulders. It was, that was, you saved us. You're welcome. So that's, I think, an interesting a uh, aspect of this, uh, as you said, dichotomy, Jason. I think it's a, an astute statement. And what I'm getting from listening to you all talk about the division and seeing our enemies as the other, I is it possible that the zombie is a metaphor for how we dehumanize our enemies? Like it's so easy to kill these zombies in these movies and books because they're just zombies. They're going to bite us, they're going to hurt us, they're right there, they don't care that we're human, they have no respect for humanity. And that is sort of how we cast any of our enemies. If you think about wars, um, and, and military people going in and killing somebody, um, or even people belonging to an anti-government coup, killing people. They don't think, I'm gonna go kill this man who is a family man and has, you know, is vying for his own resources with his own needs and wants. No, we, we even give them derogatory names for our enemies to make them seem less human, so they're easier to kill. And that's just sort of how we divide and define our enemies. So I don't know, is the zombie a good metaphor for that? I think it's a great metaphor for that. I mean, it's exactly what it is. You know, they resemble people. Um, you know, we've been talking about movies and books and things like that, but there's a lot of zombies in video games, too. And for the longest time in video games, video game developers wouldn't allow you to hurt real people or the representations of real people. So anytime you shot a guy, he'd be wearing a mask or he'd have a hood. Or a zombie is basically a human being that you don't feel bad about murdering, you know, because they're a threat. But they look like people, they act like people. It's the representation of humans. And so I think it's a great metaphor that way. You know, they're like us, and we can see those parallels, but they're just different enough that we can justify the things that we're going to do um, and not feel bad about it. Well, and I think it's a safe way to take out natural aggression. You know, we mentioned the concept of not getting into the overly political overtones. My family's a very strong military family, and there's a lot of pride in that element. And this is a taking out, I don't think, as you said, Jason, nobody is necessarily that I believe that war is a viable solution, just as if, boy, if we had an argument, I don't want to flip the table up, even though some of us may be tempted to it do that at times. Fun. I've just had enough of this discussion. It's not an amiable solution. It's not going to be effective, but using zombies or even the video games, we just looked at the, the Last of Us trailer mm -hmm. in Criminology to kind of explore that same theme, that they look very human, very graphically gory, um, but I it's a great way to kind of tell the story of, again, being a conquering stra stra strategic thinker, um, and yet playing that hero role in not any way putting us ourselves in actual danger. I guess depending on where you've got your uh, gaming system located. Or and who not, you're playing uh, with. to that too, like not murdering real people. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. that division there that you don't kill people, but you can kill humanoid, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever this thing is. It was interesting that you talked about the mask, too, because even thinking back to other movies like Star Wars, think about the stormtroopers. Always have masks on, don't they? But the good guys never have masks on. So that's been playing ever since a film called Alexander Nevsky, a Russian movie from the 30s where 
Stalin was trying to dehumanize Germans by showing them always wearing a mask. So just even the act of showing somebody's face is a deeply humanizing aspect of them. So, but I, I think zombies are so many things that are metaphors for, for potentially problems left unsolved that come back and get you later. Almost like a Pandora's box where you, what you want, what you wish for, ends up being not exactly what you wanted. Most religions have some aspect of them where the believer has life after death, where you're promised that you'll come back in some form. If everybody found out, for example, they were going to come back as zombies, that wouldn't exactly fit the bill. So, I don't know. And I, I think it's also a, a great example of disease, too. So. Yeah, I've seen, like, posters and humorous buttons that said, Jesus rose after death. That means he's technically a zombie. I've, I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen that kind of thing. And my argument to that is, yeah, there was life after death. Uh, you know, a lot of people believe in life after death, but you keep your humanity after death. In fact, the physical right. form is what's gone, not not the humanity. So I just wanted of to course. offer that critique of the whole Jesus as zombie. <laughs> well, I think I too. wasn't saying that. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it wasn't it you, yeah. Jason? <laughs> it was, it, I was just thinking about that when that circulated. Jason flips the table. The panel <laughs> takes a darkly turn. Actually, though, what I think is interesting, and it's something that I've given a lot of thought out, it's very easy, as we said, that the non-humanized characters of how we would attack them, how we would confront them. But we think of this as an issue of truly people who are infected, not necessarily with a zombie virus, but they're truly ill with a, a pandemic flu virus or something even more catastrophic. You mentioned you know, the, the Black Plague. And then suddenly it doesn't seem as easy that we are going to wipe this group of people off or that we're going to go full-scale war with them because they are human beings and so coming up with these coping strategies I think then it raises an interesting question that on one hand it's easy to say well these non-human characters absolutely I, I would take them out with a shovel to the head like that but then when it's your neighbor well I guess again depending on your property line division but yeah. uh, on the same aspect that that wouldn't be as easy to look into those eyes and say well you're sick and has a lot of statements on how we treat you know various groups in society Okay. Um, yeah, I think we're privileged to be sitting here today talking about what we would do and in, in an apocalypse and the different things, the different metaphors, when there are so many places in the world where they really are dealing with their world coming to an end, whether it's um, people caught in the conflict in Syria or refugees from Africa or people suffering natural disasters. Uh, Max Brooks said that in another one of his interviews. He said, um, you know, the we are facing many enormous catastrophes, terrifying things like the threat of nuclear war, massive hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. Um, he said that the zombie genre is a good place for us to safely work out our apocalyptic worries. Um, and then to uh, transition from that onto a more positive note, I would like to ask, yeah, <laughs> um, let's say American society has totally collapsed. Would there be a rebuilding? Would we start over? Um, and I'm just opening this up to the panelists. Oh, no pressure. Okay. Yeah. So we're solving <laughs> the collapse of society right now. But, um, but the zombies have been killed off now and okay. society has collapsed. Now what? We I begin mean, to build. Well, yeah, the, I imagine the there's a rebuilding, be? but, you know, it's, uh, it's like you almost have to go back to square one, that all of the civilization that we depend on, like electricity, you know, would be gone. And so you go back to like groups of people that farm or hunt, and that slowly, maybe over hundreds or even thousands of years, that becomes civilization. 
But I don't think that it would happen that quickly. I think you'd need that, like, organization period to get people on the right path and make sure that they're alive, like, just suiting their basic needs. You know, like, are people getting food? Are they staying healthy? Um, you know, are they having children? And later you would get into rebuilding what we have now, which is amazing beyond belief and has taken thousands of years of innovation and work and civilization. I think one of the other elements, too, of who survives and who would be able to handle a rebuilding process is how do you take care of yourself now? Are you a healthy individual? Do you, I mean, we think of how pampered we are in everyday life. I, this morning, oh, it's chilly. I'm going to put my heated seat on. It's 50 degrees outside. It's not very <laughs> cold. Um, but and, uh, would we be able to endure the hardship of not having the foods that we like or having to filter our water? and things of that, and just simply the physical hardship that goes about with this process. And I think that's a really interesting part of everyday life that we probably neglect, that we don't think about our physical ability to endure, just our endurance. And I think that would be really a determination on who survives and, and who doesn't, and who would be capable, who would take over these functions. You said, Nick, as you said, the how would we get our electricity running? Well, who's going to take the leadership and have the knowledge to go do that? Hopefully all our uh, electrical engineers hadn't perished, um, otherwise then someone would have to, to pick up that rain. So I think there's some kind of interesting components in that, that rebuilding question. I imagine the rebuilding would start very small at the local level. Who do you consider your community? Who would you rally with? Do you know your neighbors? Would these people that you'd cooperate with? Or do you not even recognize them if they were actually sitting here on the panel? So in that aspect, and who do you kind of cultivate to? And where, where, what group of people would you work with? I think that's an interesting question in our personal lives to think about how rebuilding would even start. Who do we work with and who do we work well with? See, and I even think longer term, because as a geologist, I'm thinking of mass extinctions when life has been basically wiped out. When you're talking about 80% of all life on Earth going away, usually something else ends up taking over. So that's what I think about. You know, everyone's sad there's no more dinosaurs, but... <laughs> we probably wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened. So if a, the zombie apocalypse did, you know, there was a low population left, I think it would rebound, but it would be probably completely different because that's what ends up happening. Is it really true that only the cockroaches would survive? Uh, I think it's damn dirty apes. Yeah. Coming <laughs> next. Yes. Yeah, that's it seems to me like most nation states emerge out of the fact that there's an economy of scale out of providing protection. When I say that, I mean one person is not as able to defend himself as two people are. Two people are going to be at a disadvantage when it comes to three, three or more. And that there's also a lot of things that just humans are very, very bad at doing by themselves. In a world of autarky, where essentially we don't trade with anybody else, where we have to do everything by ourselves, I don't know what I'd do if I got a toothache. I'd probably be a, a very, very unhappy person. But in a world where we can specialize and do what we're best at, any kind of a nation state that can provide that is going to be at a serious advantage. So I have a, a little bit shorter of a time span than I, I think our esteemed geologist does. <laughs> but I, I definitely think that one would emerge. So, yeah. I have looked in my backyard before and thought, if, if there were no if the grocery stores just suddenly stopped functioning, like how much food could I grow if I tore up like my nice sod and planted like some kind of garden and what would I do in January? I feel like I personally have evolved in this highly technical society and I think I would be one of the first to go. 
<laughs> See, I've got a lot of ants in my backyard, so mm -hmm. I think I'd be okay. Ants? Yeah, eat, right? Right. See, right. and I'd be like freaking out because there's no place to get a pedicure. <laughs> so I'd be done. I'd be done. I think an interesting component that also that comes with this, and again, being a preparedness nerd, um, is the fact of what would you do with your pets? Are you going to pull them into safety with you? Would you think about that? Or will we have packs of dogs roaming? And that would be an element of a, you know, to a certain extent of also rebuilding. I think, Krista, as you said, that something else would become dominant and maybe not at the same scale that, you know, clearly that we have established, but what would be then the new issues? If the zombies are gone, what would be our new enemy? And what would be the, uh, other than packs of other roving individuals, um, what would grow in its place and what would be the new kind of fears um, in, in that form of more modern life, I think is uh, an interesting question. Smurfs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and once you've eaten your pets, like, you have to ask, do you have yeah. something more sustainable, you yeah. know, after that? Oh. I meant you'd give it a week or so. You wouldn't just, like, <laughs> that night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the heartless will survive. But, yeah, so Krista actually <laughs> is standing top of the food chain. <laughs> giving pedicures. <laughs> in the siege of Leningrad in World War II, when they were blockaded by the Nazis for three years, you can look that up. They did some pretty not nice things to survive. Cannibalism. I mean, I think you can look that up at the beginning of our country. You know, the, the, the people that came over here from Europe did pretty awful things to survive to begin with. I mean, the, the birth of our country was based on all of that, you know, doing whatever it takes to get through this awful winter that no one had ever experienced. Then you're throwing my entire profession of justice out the window because how do we judge those individuals and how they behave in these apocalyptic conditions and now I'm out of a job. So thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. <laughs> but no, I think then it, it, that's a really intriguing aspect in, in the sense of I talked about our physicality and ability to survive our mental toughness. The idea of killing my pet, I have to admit, makes me cringe a little bit. But if it came between my pet and my child or, you know, something... Uh, then maybe it's it'd be hard to do, but do you have the mental toughness to do some of these things that are need to survive? I think that's kind of a, a self-gut uh, check, if you will. When you're looking at the dog and thinking this, <laughs> is the dog looking at you thinking the same thing? Exactly. Like, what do I have to right. do to take this person down? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, if the panel is ready, I'd like to open it up to the audience. Um, just a couple of things. Any comment or question you'd like to make, but I did ask you, what would you bring? What do you think you could do to survive? What would be the most important thing? Um, are there any other dehumanized groups of people that the zombie metaphor applies to in some cases? Um, or like I said, anything at all? Anyone 
Wait, let me repeat the question for the audience and, and for the video. Um, it was a two-part question. He said, first, what's more prevalent or more realistic, governments assisting people in a catastrophe or governments instilling fear and actually working against the people? Is that, is that right? And his second part was um, about quarantines and to what extent are these kinds of things like quarantines and testing people ethical? All right, well, let's get this party started. Nothing like jumping out uh, with both feet in. What do we think of how the government would react? Um, well, I, being an emergency preparedness professional, I am deeply involved in the fact that we have systems in place to help people survive. Will everyone survive? No. Um, but that we can attempt to keep our system running efficiently. Now, do I think then there's going to be full disclosure of everything that people will want to know in a possible post-apocalyptic world? Probably not. I don't think we'd see the free-flowing freedom of information that our society has come to value today. I think that would, we would definitely see of let the people know what they need to know, and that's it, because we want to keep people from being fearful, because that's where then we see anarchy, and we do not want to see martial law break out where vigilantism then becomes the rule. So I think there has to be an openness where there's a trust that the government will keep our systems running efficiently, and I think we have some of these systems in place that Again, um, we haven't seen mass destruction on this level. Hopefully, knock on wood, we prepare for things that would never happen. But I think we'll be told what's necessary to keep us safe and keep us from falling into disorder. See, one of my favorite parts of the book was when um, they had the vaccine that really didn't work. So I can see something like that happening where you might want not to trust the government. I'm yeah. Yeah, and isn't that <laughs> why they did it to to quell the panic? It's and <laughs> oh, okay. It's like an old West <laughs> medicine show, I guess. <laughs> okay, next question or comment, or maybe you disagree. Did you want to? Yeah. Thank you. He he did mention something about the ethics of quarantine, and I think that's really interesting. You know, I think that we'd have to respect people's basic human rights. But there comes a point where you have to say the quarantine is for the larger good. And we're not hurting somebody with the quarantine. We don't want to do that. But you want to, like, that takes priority. Making sure that you don't annihilate the population <laughs> takes priority. And so, I mean, I would worry about some basic human rights being maybe violated. But I don't know. I feel like it could be done in a way that that wouldn't happen. But, again, if it's all an apocalyptic situation, uh, maybe that's realistic. It'll probably play on what your a lot of your philosophies are today. I mean, if you are trustful of the government today, that you may take that into this sort of catastrophe, or if you don't. I mean, if you believe in the, or you there's you have a healthy amount of distrust, that's probably not suddenly something that's going to go away, especially as the competition for resources increases. So, like I said, I come from a clear bias because this is what I like to do for my profession, so I believe systems are in place. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. This is a new field. This is why I love studying it. But on the same hand, it would be naive to presume that everyone's going to operate in a way that's for the betterment of humankind or that just bad things just don't sometimes happen, as Nick somewhat indicated. So I think a lot of it is an assessment of what do you believe today? Where are your thought processes about the role of government today? Um, may have a lot to do with how you believe in surviving an incident like this. And I just want to add, I think a quarantine is far more ethical than what sometimes happens, um, and that is a stigma. Often we stigmatize people with diseases or illnesses, especially mental illness, 
Um, and I think that's that's what's really cruel. Most people would probably volunteer to self-quarantine. I mean, how many times have you had an office mate say, I, I've got the flu, stay away from me, you know? <laughs> um, so that's just what I think. Okay, someone else. This question is for Michelle. Um, you having worked in law enforcement and this apocalypse happens, would you, there, there's an obligation where you want to fight for your country, but would you choose to fight for your country or help your family survive? Oh, wow. Okay, well, thanks for jumping out with a, an easy one there. That's a really great question. You know, and I think that's a, a challenging question to ask. My husband has commi uh, committed himself to military service, being deployed overseas, so I would think very strongly that that's a sense of duty in our family. Um, but on the same hand, I would be very compelled. I have two small children now. And I think that's a likely consideration. Does a law enforcement agency have a plan if a third of their officers don't show up for duty because they say, hey, um, I'm gonna look out for my own family. And in that instance, in, we see that as part of modern culture. All our first responders, we think of it's great to have a plan. I think it's, I have all these things. I know for certain I would be at home alone because my other half would be out as a first responder. So. I think that's a, an interesting question. You bring up a really great dynamic that I don't have an easy answer for that. I'd like to think that all the right answers would be right in front of me. Um, I'd probably have to then have a plan with family members. Where are grandpa and grandma? Where are brothers and sisters that can, that can help out? Um, and I don't think arming my six-year-old is probably the best plan while I can save the day. Um, but it, it's a relevant question that I think anybody who works in public safety would have to tax themselves to think about. Great question. But you, but what would you do, Michelle? Oh, um, so you didn't notice how I danced <laughs> around that. My, my footwork has, uh, needs some work, huh? Um, in all honesty, I, mm, gosh, that's a tough question. Um, Nick, what do you think? What would you do? <laughs> I mean, the question is, like, do you trust the government? And I think that you've made that clear. You know, it's, the question is almost like, who would want to volunteer for that? Like, if you have to go defend your family, who wants to leave them to go defend what could be left of the country? And I think all of that is based on, do you trust the government? Do you think that they're doing the right thing? Do you think they're motivated the right way? Or do you think that you have the right choices and that you can't trust them with those kinds of choices? So did I skip the answer, too? Yeah. I think I did. Yeah. I know that happened um, in, in, in the book is um, one of our zombie expert military guy who had experience in the field, and I don't remember exactly what he was, but he had to do that. He hugged his kids and he said, I have to, I, I'm the one who knows, I'm the one who can help, and he was sort of our hero, of course, and, and he, he, it was really hard, and like it broke my heart to watch him hug his kids and have to say goodbye. No, I think it is, I think it's a really great question, and I'll be totally honest, I have no idea what I would do in that circumstance. I hold a lot of pride, for those of you who take class with me, I take so much pride in my profession, and, and my, our role in society, and the things that we strive to achieve, but you're right that, for goodness sakes, let, I thought it'd be sad the even idea of eating my pet. So <laughs> the idea of that I'm foraging outwards into the apocalypse, ugh, gosh, that, that's a tough call. But I do strongly believe that, again, there are systems in place that I think that we, we do what we'd have to and that we do rise to the occasion. And again, like I said, my family comes from a military background and that's where it's what makes our country great, that when people have been called to act in these circumstances, there's always been people to answer the call. And I, I think that's a, a really exciting part of this book, and it gives us an opportunity to discuss, again, on that individual level. Oh, um, so Jason, what have they done in other zombie stories? <laughs> I, for one, trust Brad Pitt. So. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know. A lot of times in traditional kind of zombie films and in zombie literature, it's funny because the first ever zombie film that I can think of is a movie called J'accuse. It's a French movie about the dead from World War One returning to remind the French people of the sacrifices that they had made. So I think that that's a deeply fundamental aspect of what being a zombie is. Most times, though, the people that tend to be in zombie books and zombie movies are loners or drifters who don't have a whole lot of attachments, whether it be the salesman in, in Dawn of the Dead, the remake, selling TVs at Best Buy, who was, by his own admission, a failed father, or the guy from Ash from Evil Dead, who is just kind of a college guy who just happens to have these things thrust on him. Most people in, in traditional literature, they don't tend to have a whole lot of baggage. They don't have to answer the hard questions like that, from my experience, at least. And we had another question up here. Uh, you guys said that those who stay in one place usually end up dead. You guys said to run. Where would you run to? What is the safest place to go to in case this should happen? Now, is this in terms of zombies? Because any disaster would be, it would depend on what the conditions were. So I don't know if If I'd the ever zombie apocalypse were to happen. Well, we were kind of saying you have to go where you're going to have your necessities, like water and food. So no matter where you go, you have to find that. And good luck finding fresh water. <laughs> well, and then the text, I think, you know, the going up to Alaska, and then, right. but then having to deal with the conditions of Alaska, you know, in, in that concept. Um, and again, just to reiterate, I strongly believe if you're in any other circumstances, if you're, giving you're being given directions, then that's some, those are the ones to follow. Um, however, um, in the case of a zombie, you're right, where would you go? Um, zombies are, don't wear your high-heeled shoes because you're going to fall and then they're going to bite you. Um, don't go into dark yeah, places have, scantily yeah. clad because for sure then you're going to fall and then they're going to bite you. That's um, all I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so it, it really does, I think it's a uh, kind of a complex question in the sense of in real emergencies you'd, you'd want to follow the instructions as provided, but in zom a zombie attack, Alaska. Apparently, you want to go to Alaska. I hear Anchorage is beautiful this time of year. I think. Well, yeah. Go ahead. I think in a lot of ways it's more of a tactical rather than a strategic question. It's not that I want to go to an island, because well, Lucio Fulci's zombie movie—that's where they all are anyway. I think it's just more about making sure that you're constantly looking for the things that you need. Of course, I have mine, but that's classified. I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> Well, and that, that's a real thing in, in human evolution. I mean, tr tribes of, of humans would travel great distances and adapt to horrible climate like they did in, 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 in the book. They went to Alaska because the zombies would freeze. And then you could just see one and, like, shoot it in the head because it was frozen. It can't hurt you. Or you could leave it frozen. You could chop its head off. Like, they were just much easier to deal with because they would freeze, but humans, live humans, wouldn't. So you adapt to the conditions. I mean, look at what? what not in what? Not in, not in Resident Evil. Oh, yeah, the zombies swim in World War Z as well, which is so freaky, like a swimming zombie, like just swimming around. But that was one, yeah, it's basically a shark. Yeah, and, uh, but like why did the Polynesians get on a boat and go across the Pacific to, to end up in Hawaii? Like somebody probably chased them there. Like that's the only reason why you would get on a, a bamboo raft or whatever, balsam, whatever they made it out of. And, and, you know, look at the extremes humans have gone to just to survive as far as changing um, our our geographic location. Okay, ne next question. Yeah. Oh, shit. 
All right. Um, in more recent zombie media, they have been replacing zombies with the infected, which are not really dead people, but more people who have been driven crazy by a virus. Like, it's the exact same kind of story, but the uh, zombies aren't dead, and they're usually fast zombies. And so I just got to ask, what are your opinion on those type of stories? Well, I'm going to put that one to Jason, so. I think probably the idea of the infected is the most common in, say, 28 days later, and that sort of a scheme. It depends. There, A lot of people say, well, they're not true zombies because zombies are slow. But now there have been enough things that have shown zombies that are quick, so it's it's a big question. I think in 28 days later they were infected with rage, so they were just mad. In a lot of ways it, it plays up the fact that we can talk about this as a model for disease. So I don't know that most times in, in things where they're the infected and with those diseases, it doesn't seem like those often come with a cure attached. So I think in a lot of ways they're similar enough. But maybe it's just that in very few movies or books do they ever really ever call them zombies anyway. It's usually the undead or the zeds or the bitten or something like that, in, in my experience at least. I think there's something too that, uh, you know, like infected or, or runners or whatever you could call them are scarier. You know, the thing about really old, the old idea of zombie and old zombie movies was that you're kind of crushed. They're slow and dim-witted and everything like that, but you just slowly became overwhelmed. And I think with some of the newer media, this is a thing that attacks you, and that's a lot scarier. And I think that just kind of fits with the change in times and cultures and things like that, that the old shuff uh, shuffling, you know, walking undead is not as scary as, you know, the things that we see in normal horror movies or science fiction. You need something that runs at you and screams and jumps in your face, and that's what you see, especially 28 Days Later, I think, really was a big push for a lot of that in all kinds of media. It's certainly the case with video games that boring wandering zombies, like that's not a scary thing <laughs> in a game, you know? But if you have something approaching you or running at you, that presents you with a challenge. Well, it really is a parallel to everyday life. The things that are probably the biggest threat to us, heart disease, obesity, they're very slow, and so most of us neglect them. But things that are fast or exciting, like you, you mentioned, like a Sharknado. I mean, that captures a lot of our attention. And the likelihood of that ever happening is, we're, we're going to hope none. I, I just thought of that when you said the zombies as sharks. And I thought, oh, and let's add in a tornado. The and Sharknado <laughs> panel discussion is uh, <laughs> yeah, scheduled be, later. That's next month. But th these are the things that attract our attention. These are the things that we prepare for when, in reality, are very unlikely to actually happen to us. So I think that's kind of also a, as much as apparently the lumbering zombies get the, the bad end of the stick. They're really very pertinent, and they, they, make some, they have some interesting things to offer. Um, but like I said, the, uh, the fast zombie and the slow zombie, who knew? I, I just want to jump in. Max uh, Brooks said in one of his interviews he prefers the slow zombie. It's more true to the genre, but he said the fast ones were so much more uh, appealing to, um, to be in a movie. For anybody that's interested in zombies and sharks, I can't recommend Lucio Fulci's zombie, spelled Z-O-M-B-I. It has a zombie versus shark fight. It's awesome. <laughs> Good times. It's a great movie. Uh, this was just a comment regarding um, zombies who aren't actually dead, like the infected. Uh, Krista mentioned earlier, um, like how it's more so a loss of humanity that makes people zombies rather than the actual undeadness. So I just wanted to say that. 
Yeah, just just I'm just going to follow up to what she said. Just a comment about how it's it's a metaphor for people that sort of has have ceased to function completely as what we view a human should, like a person who's so sick or a person who's mentally ill or a person who's so full of rage, they have lost their humanity. And Carrie, uh, yeah, I'm seeing a bunch of hands up. Oh, she's coming. Okay, my question is very important. It needs to be answered. Okay, I live down the street from a cemetery, but I have a cat. So, like, how much time do you think I have? If the zombies come, like, will my cat protect me? And if, if I need, like, do I need lots of cats to, like, take on the zombies that will come from the cemetery down the street? Like, I live one block. Has the cat protected you in the past? He, he doesn't like mice. But 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 I can get lots more cats. So what I was thinking, like, can there be more cats than zombies, and then I'll win, or like, how would that work? I think no, for the no. most part, a cemetery might be a surprisingly safe place to be, depending on. Again, we're talking about zombies. Who knows if they're super strong, slow, fast, whatever? I'm going by the World War Z ones. If a person is buried in a cemetery, they're six feet underground, which is heavy. There's a lot, a lot of earth under there. And they're in a concrete vault. And they're in a box. So if they're getting out, they're going to be like the Incredible Hulk as it is. And probably they're going to be muscle bound, which means they're going to be walking around like that. Or maybe they're just unearthly strong. I don't know. They'd have to be really, really strong. And if they're that strong, probably they're going to be able to break through your house anyway, just like punch through it. What kind of cat are we talking here? <laughs> Well, you could take two cats and take the tails and make like nunchucks out of them. I don't. Well, I, I don't believe I just said are, that out loud. Totally, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, but this has gotten off track. You're completely missing the point. The cats will sustain you if you eat like one a week. <laughs> That's how they will protect you. Okay. Did you see that? Okay, our our, our next question. <laughs> okay. Well, my thought was is then if you know, there's all these different characteristics for zombies, but um, in high school, I read a book called The Zombie Survival Guide. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of discussions based on this. Like, we would just kind of break off and have time. And we would just talk about it. Like, uh, he's around here somewhere. My boyfriend. Like, we would just talk about it. And one of the things is, is like, now, I think Resident Evil stole my idea. <laughs> because in my old house, we had, like, brick. It was a house made out of brick. And then, like, the basement was above ground, sort of. And like the huge, like uh, built-in razor saw things to come out, but yet if there's like those morphed ones, like the gigantic ones, because I'm more of a Resident Evil person, then there was that like super humongous one. Like, where would something like that come from, and what would be the typical characteristics of what would be a true zombie? So you have these blade things at your house? <laughs> no, no, no. It was just like one of those like ideas. Oh, and okay. also like another thing was, was like, okay, if we can get like enough <laughs> gas in the car like to just like beeline to Sam's Club, stock up and poof, back home, you know, like one of those types of things to get prepared, if anything, you know. But what would it be to like true home zombie stuff? But I liked your question about <laughs> what is a true zombie um, if, if we want to tackle that. 
a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on the zombie survival guide. I think it's interesting. I don't know that I agree necessarily with a lot of his recommendations. Like the M1 Garand, I'm not seeing the viability of that, but... Right. The thought was about blowing out the stairs and having like a rope ladder. I think that's a really good idea. If there was ever a super huge zombie, kind of like what you were talking about, I think probably the worst idea would be to try to fight it. Probably just run. You're probably faster than it because it's probably big. If not, there's a car. Bicycle maybe. I don't know. I think that's deeply dependent. I think if animals could be zombies, then I think we're all done for anyway. If a mosquito could turn you into an undead creature, forget it. We're, we're talking about a lot of stuff for nothing. I don't know. Can I just add, though, the fact that you said that this is something that spark, reading a book has sparked discussion, and I just think this is so pertinent, the fact of whether you're... I am not a zombie person, so even your strategy, I have to admit, I was like, I got nothing. I have no concrete things on how you would fortify your home against zombies. But the fact that it is starting discussion on all these greater themes, that's the reason why we, we read these books and that it kind of sparks some of these thoughts that you can find something um, that grabs your interest. So I think that's phenomenal. I think that's really great. And I just want to point out, I, unless it's a different uh, How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse, Max Brooks also wrote that, unless it's a different one that she's talking about. Yeah. So I just want to point out the book we're talking about, he wrote that first, and it sort of inspired this book. We have another question from the back. Yeah, I would just like to point out like how tie in what he said, how there was um, zombies with like infection, infectious, so they're not like really zombies, they're not like dead, it, it's just like a disease, right? So w what would you do if like a family member were to be like that? A and zombie? That's, and that's not just a zombie, but like have a disease that makes them go crazy. You know, like mm -hmm. if it's a disease, you could still cure it. So what would you do? Would you kill them if they're going crazy, or would you, well, or would you not? And don't put just a regular person in there, because if it's just right. a regular person, you don't feel that bad. You'll and just kill them because you're afraid. Yeah, and can you all hear the question? What would you do if one of your family members had a disease that made them so go into like a crazy rage and they sort of lost who they originally were? And I, I think we should put this question on Michelle, too. So, no. Well, I think that it's actually a pertinent question in the sense of if you notice signs of disturbance or stress or mental illness in someone that you love, what do you do? Because they may not be able to recognize those signs. You know, we're very fortunate here on a, cam a college campus where we have counseling available or we have resources that we can go to. But I think that really raises points that we're especially we're seeing in the news that mental illness is often a, a common focal point for people who act in violent ways in public spaces. And what do you look for? So I think to simply just being aware of what some of the, the common characteristics are, but also that we're not psychologists, that we can't necessarily diagnose. Now, in this case, I think you would know if the, the drool had increased, the amount of slow lumbering in your house <laughs> seemed on, on the up and up. But I think as far as that goes, how do you recognize signs of um, someone's personality being off? There are so many outlets today that we could hopefully take advantage of and, and reach out to. And I think that even goes to here on campus. You, you feel uncomfortable in your class, so there's something that just seems off. We're in an era of if you see something, say something. And, and here at Moraine, we want to know. If something makes you feel uncomfortable, 
let us know so that something can be done about it. So if, but to get to your real question, um, if I knew one of my family members, um, I guess it depends what family member you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> this is the real <laughs> question there. Um, Nick, in a... People band together. And I think you see this in a lot of books and movies that people get bitten by the zombies when they don't want to, like, shoot them or when they, they're like, oh, it was my mom. Like, I'll just wait and maybe she won't turn. I think that's been used again and again. I mean, there's a great scene in Shaun of the Dead that's all about that. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think this is the flip side of it, that we want to band together and you want to help people, but there are times that having that feeling puts you at the biggest risk. You know, like you don't want to get rid of your family members, but that's what's going to put you face to face with whatever this infection is. So I think it's a good question in that sense. I don't know that I have an answer because we don't have situations like that. Like you wouldn't think of killing like a, uh, relative if they had a stroke, <laughs> you know, but mm -hmm. um, we don't have an infection that turns people into something violent or that creates a risk like that. Usually it, it's just something that hurts them and not everything around them. Yeah, in our society, the rule of thumb is wait until they hurt somebody and then yeah. incarcerate them. Right. And uh, when he brought that question up, what I actually thought of in my mind was not a disease that the family member might have, but an addiction. Okay, so I think that's a good stopping point. Let's give everyone a round of applause. Thank you. This has been, been an exciting conversation. Um, thank you again, everyone, for coming. Just two quick commercials, three quick commercials. Check the One Book website for future events. We'll be talking with philosophy instructors about individualism and zombies, art faculty talking about zombies and pop culture. In October, we'll be showing World War Z on the quad. That's all free. And then in October, also our World War M, our own zombie apocalypse game. Please come and play. It's going to be fun. Thank you. Thanks again, panel members.